From Jihad to Jesus. Today on Evidence and Answers, you're going to hear from a former terrorist who came to Jesus Christ. This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. Let's get right to this special program and Pat's guest. Thanks a lot, Kevin. We have with us a special guest today, Jerry Rasamni. Jerry was a born in a Muslim family and grew up in Lebanon during its bloody civil war, and he was a militia fighter for the Muslim Lebanese army there. And he's going to share with us his exciting story of how he went from jihad to Jesus. And that's the title of his great book here, From Jihad to Jesus. Jerry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pat. I'm thrilled to be on the show with you. Thank you for having me. Jerry, we want to thank you for writing the book and sharing your story. And I'm sure many of us are going to want to hear uh, your exciting story. So share with us a little bit of your background. Where were you born? And describe a little bit of your faith as a Muslim. Okay, well, uh, my story is one of uh, one having come from hatred into love. You know, just to give you some insights about the hatred that brewed in me when I was in Lebanon during the Civil War, one day I was at the front and I heard the church bells toll signaling Sunday worship, and without hesitation I knew exactly what I had to do, and I picked up a sniper rifle with a long scope, and I aimed it at him at the man tolling the bell. He was on the Christian side a few hundred feet away from me. And I thought Allah was smiling at me. And when I had his head in my crosshairs, I pulled the trigger and I had, I had a grin from ear to ear. And then I screeched in horror as I saw that the bullet had missed his head by a few inches as he ducked down at the last second with the toll of the bell. And I was distraught because I thought I had missed the opportunity of a lifetime. For I could have told the Christians on the other side that I was the one who blessed their service on that Sunday morning and that such would be the fate of anyone who dared to the church bell. But I thought that all was lost because of my reckless arrogance. I lamented only if I had aimed at his heart instead, maybe I would have got him. Pat, I was a product of my surroundings, having grown up in the Civil War in Lebanon. There was hatred, there was bloodshed and killing everywhere, and it's no surprise that I grew up hating. And we had, uh, we had an enmity with the Christians, um, over there. And, and having been in the Civil War, I came to see, Pat, something that many never perceive in a lifetime. I came to see the true heart of man, and it is the heart of darkness. And when religion tells you that man is basically good, it is a lie of colossal dimensions. For I saw what I am capable of and what others around me are capable of. And I saw men burn. I smelt their burning, and I was satisfied. That is what is in the heart of man. That is what man is capable of. Now, Jerry, uh, you grew up in a Druze Muslim family. Could you explain to us the beliefs of the Druze? Yeah, the Druze, uh, it's a small monotheistic sect that came out of Islam. They're called Ahl al-Tawheed, the, the people of the unity of God. And um, they have some, uh, some beliefs like in reincarnation, this sect, by the way, was founded by Al-Hakim, who was the sixth Fatimid Caliph from, uh, who reigned from 996 A.D. to 1021. And they believe that, uh, that he was a reincarnation of the Christ and that he will, he will reappear again. And he will reappear as the Mahdi, as the Savior. So it's a small uh, monotheistic sect that came out of Shia Islam. Now, you grew up in Lebanon, so describe for us, yeah, during the war between the Christians and the Muslims, what was going on at that time as you entered into this war? I remember growing up in a shelter. I mean, there were daily bombings, and we would have to go down to the bomb shelter 
you know, up to one-fifth of the pre-war population, about a million people were displaced from their homes. Uh, thousands of landmines uh, remain buried in previously contested areas, and many hostages were taken, some who number in the tens of thousands who are never to be heard from again. And car bombs became a favored weapon of violent groups worldwide following their frequent use in the, in the war in Lebanon. So the Maronite Christians, and, and let me just make the point here that I later came to understand, Pat, that not everyone who claims to be a Christian is in fact one. But after I came to this country, I began to study the Bible in order, in order to refute it. I came to see something fundamentally different about the people that I had met with in the church over here. There was love in their hearts. But the people that I fought against back home, they came to annihilate us in the mountains, and we wanted to, you know, we had to kill them or be killed by them. Yeah, and one of the things you write in your book is that that was your impression of Christians, that they hated Muslims and they were out to destroy Muslims. That was your understanding of Christians. Is that the understanding, unfortunately, of a lot of Muslims in the Middle East? Well, yes. I mean, uh, Muslims in the Middle East don't see America as it's an objective broker of peace, if you will. Uh, they see America as siding with, with Israel, and so that's why they have a distrust for America. One thing that we must do, Pat, is rebuild America's credibility with the Muslim world, because Arabs and Muslims in general view the American foreign policy as a policy of insult. So that, that's why there's that general distrust against us. And, you know, when you have uh, President H.W. Um, uh, Bush, who encouraged the Shia and cursed to rebel against Saddam in 1992, and when they did rebel, uh, Saddam slaughtered them, and we didn't come to their rescue. So one thing that we must do is rebuild America's credibility with them. PR is very important. Now, Jerry, as I was reading through the book, you know, in the same way that Islam boasts the five pillars of faith, you came up with the five expository pillars that expose the skeletons of Islam, and that was part of your journey in coming to, in leaving Islam and coming to faith in Christ. Uh, could you please elaborate for us on those five pillars? Yes, absolutely. I tried, uh, Pat, to take the entire dialogue between Muslims and Christians and boil it down to its very essence. And in the same way that Islam boasts of five pillars of faith, my five exposition pillars of Islam are, number one, people. Do they need a savior? Are they born in a pure state? The second one is the Quran. Let's examine the Quran. Is it the true word of God? And the third one is Islam's prophet Muhammad. Was he a biblical prophet? And the fourth one is Allah. Is he truly the God of the Bible? And the fifth one is the, the Ahadith, the Muslim customs and beliefs. Are they truly from God? And these five pillars personify how Islam self-destructs once you expose it to the flames of objective reasoning and critical analysis. And it's no surprise that Muslim theologians have snuffed out analytical inquiry of Islam in order to shield it from its deficiencies. Now, how are you as a Muslim able to get over that hurdle and really take a critical look at your own faith? That's very difficult to do. Well, let me just say that the majority of Muslims are Muslims by culture and by name, in the same way that we have people claiming to be Christians that are only that by name. And so I was a secular Muslim in my belief, but one thing, Pat, that was unthinkable to me uh, was for me to be a Christian. And when I, when I came to this country and I began to, to examine the Bible in order to disprove it, see, I fell in love with a Christian lady 
and she was the only uh, Christian probably in the history of the church, of the, of the Baptist church, who's never heard of being unequally yoked. And so I asked her if she would marry me, and, and you know, she, she agreed. But she made me promise that I would go to church with her. And I, I thought it was a win-win situation because I knew that the Bible was false. I just didn't know why. So I thought this would give me an opportunity to disprove the Bible. But, Pat, as I began to examine the Bible in order to disprove it, I came across some revolutionary teachings. You see, in the 99 excellent names of God, of Allah, and Islam, not one of them is love, not one of them is father. But even though uh, Muslims fear God, but they don't have that intimacy, that intimate relationship with them. In Christianity, I learned that God, even though I have sinned against him, even though I have rebelled against him, he made a way for me to come before his very throne and call him Abba through the sacrifice that his son has done on the cross for me, that I, who sinned against him, can come before the creator of the universe and call him Baba, Abba. And this revelation just rocked my world. Yeah, in Islam, the relationship is more of a master-slave kind of described uh, in the Quran, isn't it? There is no intimacy, exactly. God is unknowable in Islam. So when Muslims are praying, they're not asking God to intercede or answer their prayer. Exactly what are they doing when they pray five times a day? What are they hoping to accomplish? Well, they're hoping to amass good works in order that their good works will overcome their bad deeds on the Day of Judgment. See, they believe in the concept of the scales of justice that are brought up in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And they believe that their good deeds will be weighed against their bad deeds on the Day of Judgment. And if the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then they will go to heaven, otherwise hell. But ultimately, God has the final say as to arbitrarily deciding who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell. So the formula of of heaven and hell in Islam is really unclear, and it is really heartbreaking that millions of Muslims follow the pillars of religion without having the assurance of eternal life. You know, it reminds me of the story of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was a member of the pantheon, Greek pantheon of deities, and Sisyphus offended the gods. Uh, Of course, it's a fictional story. He offended the gods because he revealed uh, immortal secrets to mere mortals, and he was confined to a life of futility, to rolling a massive stone up a hill, only to watch it roll back and to repeat the process endlessly. And similarly, when Muslims follow the pillars of religion without the assurance of eternal life, it is a life of futility. Well, let's get to pillar number one. Uh, Islam teaches that people are born in a pure state. Uh, The Bible teaches that people are born sinners. That was very significant to you, wasn't it? Explain that to us. Yes. In fact, if we uh, look at man, if we examine man, uh, we see easily his feet of clay. I mean, this issue of whether people are born in a pure state or in sin is a defining difference between Christianity and Islam. This is really the smoking gun, the evidence by which Islam uh, or Christianity rise or fall. Christians believe that people are born in in a sinful state, uh, what we call original sin, and they require a savior, whereas Muslims believe that people are born in a pure state, in fitra, and that they can attain moral purity according to their own merits. 
But, you know, surprisingly here, the Quran retells the story of the Bible concerning the events in the Garden of Eden. And the Quran tells us that Satan tempted Adam and Eve, that's in Surah 236, and caused their shame to be exposed, that's Surah 727, and that they were subsequently expelled from the Garden because of their sins, that's Surah 238. So by deduction, the Quran admits that by disobeying God, Adam and Eve not only affected their own destiny, by being expelled from the garden, but they also affected the destinies of their progeny, the, the human race. But despite these overwhelming evidences, Muslims do not entertain the doctrine of original sin. As far as I'm concerned, I saw what man is capable of. I saw the darkness in man's heart. And for me, I knew that I, since my sin is an infinite sin against God himself, I required an infinite savior to pay the price for my sin. Uh, Jerry, do a lot of Muslims feel that, or know that they've fallen short of God's law and there's a sense of futility of not being able just to do enough to really appease Allah and fulfill the law? Muslims follow the pillars of religion blindly. But let, let me put this whole argument in perspective, Pat. You know, Islamic tradition is very specific about ritual cleansing in preparation for prayer, for salat. So if Muslims have undergone ablution, which is ceremonial cleansing, but they come in contact with some dirt and proceed to pray, they're considered unclean, and Allah will not accept their prayers. In the same way, however, that dirt makes our bodies unclean, sin makes our souls unclean, and this qualifies from approaching a holy God. So really, once you examine the evidence, you see that you know, our sin separates us from a holy God. Yes, and, you know, in Islam, they reject the idea of Christ dying on the cross and the resurrection uh, because they reject the idea that uh, man is born sinful and in need of a Savior. Man can indeed save himself because he is born pure. Isn't that correct? Correct. In essence, uh, you know, if you recall the story at the Tower of Babel, people all spoke the same language at the time, and they wanted to build a tower to commemorate their own greatness so that they will make themselves a name in the earth. And so instead of looking at God and instead of glorifying and magnifying God, you know, they looked at themselves. And that is the same lie that Satan came and told Eve in the Garden of Eden. He said, you will be like God. Satan didn't want to give God the glory, but he wanted the glory for himself or for man. And so in the same way that, you know, these people at the Tower of Babel sinned against God, by putting their trust and their eyes on themselves instead of God. Today, Muslims sin against God by putting their faith in themselves instead of God. In essence, they become gods in their own eyes. And God becomes irrelevant in the folds of his creation. And they trust in themselves. And they believe, in essence, the lie that Satan told Eve in the garden, you will be like God. So pillar number one was the nature of man. Now pillar number two is the Quran. Is the Quran the true word of God? Well, what does the Quran claim for itself? Well, the Quran claims that it has been written on tablets of stone and in heaven. It exists in heaven and that it is eternal. But, you know, to a Muslim, the greatest sin is the sin of shirk, is to associate anyone with God. In other words, that's what they accuse Christians of when they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They say that's associating someone with God. They don't understand that God chooses to reveal himself in different ways. 
But however, you know, if they truly believe that Islam has always existed on tablets of stone in heaven, then they themselves commit the sin of shirk. In other words, God is not the only one who is eternal, but the Quran itself has been eternal or is eternal. They believe that, uh, that the Quran is the word, is the true word of God, and that uh, it cannot be changed. Yes, it is the perfect book that came out of heaven and that also it has been perfectly preserved to this day. Right, yes. They don't believe in translating the Quran, but in fact, when you, when you take that argument you know, to its natural uh, conclusion, Muslims all over the world, 80% of Muslims who do not understand Arabic, you know, are required to pray in a language that they do not understand. So in essence... They're repeating these words they do not understand. So instead of having the intimacy of a relationship with God, you have repetitive rituals that are meaningless. So repetitive rituals, in essence, take the place of the intimacy of a relationship. But if you examine the Quran, you see that the, the hand of man had gone into, into changing the Quran over the years. In other words, you see that the Caliph Osman, he, he preceded the uh, Islam's prophet, you know, in the caliphate. And he was called the terror of the books because, they, because the people said that he found the Qurans many and he burnt them except one. So different caliphs had their hands in, in making the Quran what it is today. And it is intellectually dishonest to, to claim that the Quran remains unchanged since the days of Islam's prophet. Jerry, what are the satanic verses, so-called, and what do we need to know about them? That's a very good question. The satanic verses came from when Islam's prophet was in Mecca. He's from the city of Mecca. And the, the people, the pagans in Mecca, wanted to, you know, they came to him, and they said, if you allow us to worship, to continue to worship the daughters of Allah, then we will, we will join your religion. And so he came up with a surprising revelation from supposedly from Allah that sanctioned the worship of these three pagan deities, the daughters of Allah. And so uh, what happened is when his followers found out, some of them fell away because he had abandoned, you know, his true call, his call to monotheism. But then when he immigrated from the city of Mecca to the city of Medina and he became very powerful there, he rescinded, wiped out or deleted the uh, revelations of the satanic verses and he claimed that those revelations were given to him by Satan instead of God. But if those revelations were given to him by Satan, how do we know that the entire thing isn't? So that's a blemish. That's been a blemish, you know, on Islam, you know, that, that has been... Very relevant in the West, but surprisingly in the East, they don't discuss that. Or they don't discuss anything that puts a blemish on Islam. They're yeah. not interested in critical analysis. Yes, it's one of the things that you mentioned in your book that textual, text critical studies of the Quran are in their infancy because people aren't really allowed to comment or critically study the Quran, as you mentioned. Exactly. I mean, if you are to say anything bad about the Quran in the East, you know, in Muslim lands, I mean, uh, either the, the mosque or, or the state will just stamp you down. So I'm not interested, you know, as I said, in, in truly understanding, you know, critical, doing critical analysis of this book, of their holy book. So you stated that 
the Quran has signs of human origin, that it has not been preserved perfectly as Muslims claim. But also in your book, you point out imperfections or some errors we find in the Quran. Could you uh, mention some for us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, when you, when you examine the Quran, you see there's a lot of uh, fallacies, abrogations, pagan influences, discrepancies, sexual errors, historical errors, plagiarism, scientific errors, grammatical errors. And I list all of these and more in the book. For instance, concerning plagiarism, you know, the Quran borrows 70% of its themes and stories from the Bible. And this prompted many scholars to assert that the Quran is nothing more than a counterfeit of the Bible. You know, Jerry, this show airs not only throughout the United States, but now we're airing into the entire continent of Asia. And we know that there are people who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So if there's someone out there listening right now who would like to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, what do they have to do, Jerry? All they have to do, see, the formula for salvation is very simple. I am a sinner, and, and my sin is an offense against an infinite God. And there is nothing that I can do to make me right in the sight of God. But where mankind did not have a way, God made a way. And God sent his son to die and to pay the price for our sin. But, you know, after the crucifixion, there was the resurrection. And because he rose, I too can rise from the dead. I too can spend eternity with God because he paid the price for my sin, a price which I could not afford. All they have to do, Pat, all you have to do, I'm not speaking with you, is put your trust in the Savior. Accept the free gift of eternal life that you could never earn, that God gives you as a gift. Accept it. Accept the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on your behalf and invite him into your heart as your Savior. And if you do that, and we can pray a very simple prayer, Pat. Dear Lord, I confess my sin. I confess, and I'm going to ask you to just repeat the simple prayer after me. Dear Lord, I confess that I have sinned against you. And I ask you to come into my life and to forgive my sin. I accept your free gift of eternal life. Lord Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. Wash my sin away. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your salvation, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This has been Evidence and Answers, and we've been speaking with Jerry Rasomni, the author of the book From Jihad to Jesus, an ex-Militant's Journey to Faith in Christ. Fantastic book. You're going to have to... It's one of the books that you should have on your shelf and read it. It's an exciting and wonderful book of a man's journey from militant Islam to faith in Jesus Christ. And Jerry, we want to thank you for being on our show and for the great ministry you're having for Jesus Christ. Thank you, Pat. I, I appreciate you having me on. I'd like to point people to my website, www.fromjihadtojesus.com. Jihad is spelled J-I-H-A-D, so it's www.fromjihadtojesus.com. And there's a blog. If you have any questions, uh, you can go ahead and post them to me, uh, and I will be uh, I will 
do my best to answer them. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. You'll find Pat Zuckerman's interviews with leading scholars and speakers on the most crucial issues facing the church and the world. Go to evidenceandanswers.org and be equipped. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. Go there now. God bless and thanks so much for listening. Evidenceandanswers.org.